Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. I really wanted to put something together that was focusing on the approach for gamers of we're not doing it to perform and get on stage in any way. We're doing this so that we can all be better storytellers and collaborators. So it's not just for GMs. It's for players. It's for LARPers. There's something for everybody. Karen Twelves and Sean Nittner are associated with many of the games featured on this podcast. Blades in the Dark, Agon, and Fiasco, to name a few. I sit down with them and discuss the newest book from Evil Hat Games, Improv for Gamers 2nd Edition. Karen explains how attending a beginner's workshop for improv turned into her creating her own workshops to arm players and GMs with better tools for telling better stories. We learn how the demand for these exercises and lessons led to a book and how they are now being updated and released in a new 2nd Edition. Now, I got an early copy, and it is packed with gold you'll use. When this episode is released, Evil Hat is crowdfunding it on GameFound. For $25, you get the printed book and the PDF. And for $15, you can get just the PDF. Use the link in the notes to check it out. You can scroll down and find it. All right, stick around to the end when we discuss Kickstarter's announcement to migrate to a blockchain platform and how that impacted where they decided to run this campaign. Patrons of Third Floor Wars help me keep this podcast, the YouTube, and Twitch channels viable. Thanks to all of you who support us there. A hearty thanks and welcome to a few of our newest patrons. Lucas Mahan, Dan Porter, Naomi Dempsey, who recently upped her support, B-Match, and Masukomi. Join them and the other patrons on our patron-only Discord, where we talk games, give advice, and recently have pop-up watch parties of various episodes. Okay, sit back, relax, and enjoy my time with Karen and Sean. And play games around the table. Greetings, friends and floorheads to Tabletop Talk from Third Floor Wars. If you love tabletop gaming, you are in the right place. Listen as Craig delivers in-depth discussions and interviews with game designers, creators, insiders, and experts. Learn from the people making and playing the role-playing, miniature, and board games you love. Howdy friends, Craig here. Today we're talking to Karen Twelves and Sean Nittner. Now, Karen is an editor and linguist and has enjoyed working on such projects as Blades of the Dark, Fiasco, Dialect, and Thirsty Sword Lesbians. Karen, those are some really good games. Welcome to the third floor. They are. Thank you so much for having me. 
I just got off running uh, blades. On oh, the street. it's such a good game. <laughs> it nice. really is. Mm-hmm. It really is. So um, I always force people to do this on my show, and I apologize in advance. I love hearing everybody's origin story. Mm-hmm. Um, so at one point, Karen, you knew nothing about tabletop role playing game. You knew didn't you didn't know you know I could roll dice and pretend to be other people, and then it was put in front of you for the first time. Can we go back there? Yes, it was the nineties in high school and my friend ben said would you like to join my dungeons and dragons campaign and i said i yeah yes <laughs> and that was it um you know i remember like we met at we were rolling up characters like in a park somewhere because you know we were teenagers and like that was the only cool place to go uh and and yeah i was in a campaign with some friends from high school kind of throughout high school and then started exploring other games uh in in college and so i had this kind of progression of the types of games i was playing and how i was learning about and getting more introduced to uh more narrative games gmless games and a lot of different styles of rpg when do you think it got its hooks in you though so did it happen back in high school my first time immediately it yes. wasn't really immediately yeah i was like this is awesome this is this is the best thing I want to find more people that do this wherever I go. So when adult Karen thinks back, <laughs> high school Karen, and yeah. like looking back in it, do you have a sense of why? So why do you think it just grabbed onto you back then? I mean, I always liked playing pretend as a kid. Yeah. And it was just fun. And we were, of course, doing the thing that high schoolers always do when you play D&D, which we were just being ridiculous. We were just... The the most ridiculous plot lines, we were getting like horrifyingly creative in how we were like terrorizing monsters. <laughs> um, so it was just a lot of fun and freedom that I, you know, wasn't didn't have in any of my other pastimes. So when you, you know, you talked about your journey afterwards, right? So mm-hmm. um, uh, you you D&D, then you start finding out more games and more games. If, mm-hmm. if we were to plot the map of from there to here, and I were to put some landmarks, what do you think were some of the big games that really kind of opened you up or changed you as a gamer uh, as you look back on it? In college, I played a lot more World of Darkness, but mm-hmm. I always kind of stayed away from Vampire. I don't know why. I played a lot of Werewolf. Interesting. <laughs> so... Yeah, so still very emo <laughs> and brooding. You know, I went to Sarah Lawrence, so checks out. And uh, a <laughs> liberal arts college um, in New York. And um, then I started playing Aberrant and Adventure uh, with some friends. And those were really fun. And Adventure specifically really introduced me more to pulp action. Right style games and so that was a very different type of story that we were telling and and suddenly you weren't worrying about protecting your characters so much you were you were really putting them in amazingly dangerous um swashbuckling types of situations so that was very fun and then i remember moving back to oakland and going to a little mini con at endgame our former uh friendly local game store and I sat down for a game of Spirit of the Century, mm. which again was like more pulp action. I was like, oh, this is like more streamlined. This is exciting. And I met such great people there. And Endgame had all of these like monthly meetups 
and little mini cons all the time, I got to play a lot of different games. And so that's where I got introduced to um, Dogs in the Vineyard, uh, Primetime Adventures, Fiasco, I think was the big one that that blew my mind again of like what a game could be. Yeah, yeah, it um, it's incredible. It's funny. Um, do you find yourself, you know, as you as you get, you know, you play games that um, are, are so elegant now, like that's the word I always <laughs> amazing how elegant yeah. games are now. And, you know, you go back to, you know, some of the older games, even World of Darkness. And, you know, at the time they were ahead of their time but if you go back mm-hmm. and look at them they're they're clunky what i'm always curious to know is do you ever find yourself getting nostalgic so is there a game that you know you probably wouldn't enjoy playing again because of your sensibilities now and what you enjoy in a game but is there is is there a game or or, or a campaign that you you're nostalgic of for i i think the campaign i'm most nostalgic for but i would 100 percent go back to it is a pathfinder campaign that i was oh, wow. in for about three years and that was just a lot of fun. Um, I would go back to it because uh, as long as it was under the same conditions where Sean had all of our character sheets in um, in Hero Labs, and so I didn't have to do any math. And he liked building characters. So when I would say, I think I want to try to be better in this thing, he would go find the feats. And so I didn't have to do any of the work. And that that made Pathfinder very playable for me because I... I get so overwhelmed by all the options and the math and the strategizing of like, oh, if you don't pick the right feet, then like this character is not going to build well. And I'm like, I don't have the foresight to to do that. I don't I don't want to. You need an assistant player is what you're saying. <laughs> yes. And and so Sean did that. And that was great. And and that was a really fun game with some really great players. And we told some really amazing stories. But being able to streamline the process of kind of that level of crunch for me was great right very that, that was also a, a game where we often would sort of stop the the the, the d20 uh hex crawling kind of uh pathfinder standard adventures and ask like what's the family drama what's the hot goss between you and your aunts and like uh there was lots of indie gaming sensibilities that we brought to that game. We were all like, very much indie gamers. Um, but, you know, it's not like we've never played those, you know, D20 games before. So. It's so hipster of you. Yeah. <laughs> it wasn't like any of us were like exploring that for the first time. Sure. Um, except for my friend Mia, who had never played Pathfinder before at all. And so she was still very new to that. She was the only person who had never played anything kind of in that D&D Pathfinder genre. And, and did she... W- uh, I mean, obviously, it sounds like the crunch was happened because of technology and the kind of the resources you have. Did mm-hmm. she grab onto it real quick because of the quality of the table or did it take her a second to gronk it? I think she did her best. I think we really tried to make things easy for her. She was playing a spellcaster of some type, I think a cleric. And and so she had a lot of options and yeah. things. And so we were all really trying to help her um, have an easy kind of reference sheet so she knew what to do. Got it. So she wasn't overwhelmed by all of her, you know, spell slots and things. Yeah, I, I, and this is not a knock on Pathfinder. I've tried. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I've tried to read the book. I appreciate it for what it is, um, but I, I may not be smart enough. 
to play <laughs> <laughs> is what it might what it comes down to and that and that is that is more about me than it is about uh paizo's game so my mm-hmm. second guest is sean nittner he's a gamer <laughs> podcaster convention organizer and twitch streamer and between all of that he is also a project manager at evil hat games and the co-creator of one of my favorite games Agon. sean welcome to the third floor welcome back to the third floor Hey, Craig, thanks for having me back. It's such a, a delight to be here. It's also fun to be like, I know what this, uh, I know, I know what this, uh, not only do I know this question, because I remember you asking me, but also I'm like, I've heard Karen's version of this, this story before. I wonder how it's going to change. Because every time you tell these stories, you know, they you add new details and things like that. So it's, it's uh, very how fun. how I got to- into gaming? Yeah, I mean, it's Ben's fault. It's Ben's fault, I do, but I didn't know the story about like making character sheets in the park. You know, it's it's a a nice detail. So (laughs) things we learn, even about our, 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 you know, our loved ones on your show. (laughs) Think, think about the connections you're creating right now. Uh, But yeah, it's a great, it's great to be back. It's good to see you. And then this is um, unintentionally kind of like Sean Nittner week because not too far uh, back we released an episode with you and John Harper, which is the audio from our round table. And on there, we did talk about your origin story, but for very quickly, uh, for anybody who does not know that, Sean, can we give people a sense of how you ended up where you are and where you fell uh, in love? Absolutely. It's it's not, not all that much different. I was in the middle school library when I heard a group of people all telling some weird story and having a good time. And that there was some talk about dragons and knights and things like that. And I kind of like crept around the corner between the stacks of books and they were sitting at a table and I was like, hey, what are you doing? And I think they probably said we're playing D&D. I don't remember what the exact answer was, but but uh, I said, can I play? And they're like, yeah, you're a gnome in a sack. And I'm like, I don't know what that means, but sure, sounds good. So I spent the whole session as a gnome in a sack. I don't know why the gnome was put into a sack. I don't really know my character's backstory, but I just kind of went, Rrr! and sort of poked in the sack occasionally. And that was, that was a delight. I had zero agency and I was still having a great uh, blast. <laughs> so I mean, you know, when they said I could actually make my own character, they got to do things not in a sack. I mean that that just that 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 was like the world expanding right before my eyes. They set so. a really good low bar for you to come into it. Didn't yeah, they? Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, it's pretty it was pretty easy to improve from there. Um, and so yeah, I followed a pretty traditional uh, arc. Not 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 really dissimilar from Karen. You know, started with D and D, and then we had some. We had some weird games. I remember in high school, Mythos, Battle Lords of the 23rd Century, uh, a lot of Palladium games. Uh, um, I mean, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, my heart. It's just hmm. like that game is so broken, but I still I still love it. Way ahead of its time. Even played Rifts. And Rifts was a just disaster, but, you know, we would just sort of play anything. Yeah. And, um, and then similarly, you know, because it was the 90s and it was cool, I was playing a lot of White Wolf games too. For mm-hmm. me, it was, I was playing Mage, but I was GMing, uh, I'm sorry, I was playing Werewolf, but I was GMing Mage. And uh, really, really loved having a, uh, a very long Mage campaign. It was fantastic. And then I started listening to Paul Tevis's Have Games Will Travel. And he was talking about games like Polaris and Dogs in the Vineyard. And I was like, whoa, those sounds super cool. And I brought them to my local group and I got sort of mixed results. Mm-hmm. And they were like, uh, wait, where's the flanking bonus? What's the grappling yeah. <laughs> rules? Right. And, uh, there wasn't, there, there was, it, it was kind of mixed. Uh, I do remember a really terrible game of fiasco that we played where we were all awful. And I would like to 
I'm so glad that was never recorded. Um, and uh, so it's sort of mixed reception, but like Karen, I went to Endgame and also to other cons and whatnot. And I saw a lot of folks sort of in the gaming, uh, indie gaming space and uh, just got exposed to so many things and, and loved it. And so dove really dove it. I mean, I had been a very enthusiastic gamer up until that point, but I hadn't really been in the biz. And that's what sort of drew me into working, putting on Big Bad Con uh, and before that, Good Omens Con and, and, uh, working at Evil Hat and just doing everything I can to be involved in, in the space. Sean and I actually met over a game of first edition Agon. Oh, no shit. Game. Yeah. That was the first time we sat at a table together. Yeah. We were, we were playing big, big all heroes. Carl Rigney was running the game. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, so it's, so, so Agon has uh, a very special meaning. Uh, <laughs> for both of us, I guess. For both of us. I also ran a game of Agon in which I was dressed in a tabard and I, I was fully like cosplaying as the GM. You were really into cosplaying as a GM at that time. I was, uh, yeah. You were into that and and tablescapes. Yes, yeah. Very or, very ornamented. <laughs> I never did manscaping, but I did tablescaping. Oh, yeah. Um, <laughs> Well, we, like we played a game of Apocalypse World, for instance, where I literally, I first I covered the table in a ton of pictures of old, like rusted out uh, uh, Humvees and like beat up, uh, half submerged uh, ATVs and things like that. And then I, so it was just the pictures all over. And then I covered it with a clear sheet of mylar of, over top of it so that you could see through it, but it was protected from water and then i just littered it with rusted crap rusted pipes rusted bike oh, chains cool. whatnot and we were playing on this table and people this is also an end game at one point someone threw like some garbage on the center of the table like a candy wrapper and i was like yeah yeah that's this game and then everybody in the space just started throwing all their <laughs> trash on it and i was like it's got a it's got a mylar it's got a plastic covering it's fine you're not going to damage anything like that do it. And so by the end of the game, like there was just a pile a heap of, of trash. everybody's candy wrappers and soda cans and all this garbage. And, to <laughs> and me, that's how Sean like, became a LARPer. <laughs> <laughs> kind of. Yeah, I didn't realize I was LARPing. But I would stand up a lot and I would dress in character when I was mm-hmm. jamming. Oh, that's great. Uh, so, yeah, that's that's my... <laughs> it's intimidating is what it is, Sean. Like, like... <laughs> I mean, the fact that Karen went out with me after a game, this was very, this was before we were in a relationship. Oh, yeah. We went out for a drink after that. Yeah. And I and was I, in, <laughs> go on. No, I, we ran into some friends of mine who had never met you before. And I don't think that they understood that that wasn't how you normally dress. Yeah. <laughs> because I was, I was cosplaying to GM Apocalypse World. Yeah. <laughs> I, I was in. I had victory spikes in my hair. I had oh goggles. Goodness. I had a bandolier of uh, em- em- empty shotgun shells. I had fatigues on. I was everything was distressed and worn. I mean, I looked like an Apocalypse World character. I thought. I've and, got this image of Karen's friends pulling her aside and going, "Hey, Karen, you okay? Just blink." Just blink. <laughs> <laughs> They were remarkably chill. I still am astounded at how chill they were about it. They were like Burning Man people, and they were just like, yeah, that's fine. Oh, yeah. They yeah, were just, yeah. just having a beer. They were not phased. You, 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 would, you would have been an amateur at Burning Man with that outfit. Right, yeah. right, right. 
<laughs> All right, guys. So the Insider Insight Series is my opportunity to sit down with designers, developers, artists, writers, and creators and learn how they approach their work. I try to understand their process, inspiration, and methods for crafting their creations. And we're going to start doing that with you, Karen. Um, so to give everybody an idea of the reason we have come together today is uh, a book called Improv for Gamers. And um, before we kind of dive in to how this came to existence, can we give everybody a little bit of an idea of what it is? Yeah. Improv for Gamers is a book that is a collection of short theater games that you can play to practice different skills that are applicable to gaming. So these are the types of theater games that actors use in workshops and that improvisers use um, to practice skills like how to listen very carefully, you know, so active listening, memory. There's a lot of like, you need to retain a lot of information in your head, um, how to just collaborate well with others, how to be enthusiastic and supportive of the people that you're playing with. So there's a lot that builds the foundation of how to improv. And in like, when you take an improv class, normally the level one is just that mm. you're not doing scenes, you're not acting, you're, you're learning the skills that you need that then will help you be a better performer. So this book is a way for people to practice those types of games in a fun way, because um, there's a lot of advice of, you know, improv is great for gaming. There's been so much discussion on that. I don't think it's a new concept at this point. Uh, but I think oftentimes it just ends with, and yeah, you should just take an improv class. And having taken improv classes myself from a variety of instructors, there are different brands, Every theater has their own, every theater has their own style. Okay. So they might be promoting a different type of improv. Some theaters are doing honestly very dramatic things. They're not looking for comedy. They're, they're doing very long improvised plays that could be, you know, very poignant and sad, mm. or they might be doing horror, or they might be doing a Shakespearean musical. Uh, and so they're going to focus on training you for that. There are going to be other theaters that are focusing on comedy and doing more like very fast paced, very quick, staying on top of things, you know, get in, make the joke, get out. And those are all great. They're all fun to watch, but they're all going to focus on different things. Mm. And so they're all going to teach you a very different approach. And so I really wanted to put something together that was focusing on the approach for gamers of we're not doing it to perform and get on stage in any way. We're doing this so that we can all be better storytellers and collaborators. So it's not just for GMs, it's for players, it's for LARPers. There's something for everybody. So what's interesting to me uh, about that, so we, we, we now know, um, because we just heard it not too long ago, how you got into gaming. Mm -hmm. When did you take your first improv class and why was that? So when did you become like exposed to that? This story is going to be remarkably similar. A friend of mine said, would you like to take an improv class? And I said, yeah, okay. I'm not going to ask uh, how you found cocaine then. <laughs> I feel like we could, I feel like there, there, there's more connection there though, because that was Chris Bennett, right? Who, yeah. who invited you. And did you meet Chris through Endgame? I met Chris through Endgame. So he was a gamer. And so he said, I want to take this improv class. Would you be interested in taking it with me? And I said, yeah, sure. I, you know, was already interested in it. And it did seem like something that would be applicable. So yeah, he didn't end up staying with it. He, you know, he took the, the six week class and then was like, all right, off to the next adventure and like fun thing that I do in my Chris Bennett life. And I was like, no, I am here. I am, I am here to stay. 
I stayed with that theater for like two years. I joined their house troupe. I was performing like two nights a week. Um, I then was in a, a couple different Bay Area troops and I started teaching. Very interesting. So it sounds to me, if I've if I've heard this right, Karen, like you went into it with um, a, a gaming mentality to mm-hmm. two sorts, right? That you're like, this could help me with my gaming. Am I did I capture that right? Yeah, yeah. I was so excited after doing improv to then jump into you know those monthly mini cons because I was uh-huh. like, I know how to bring it now. I am going to be fearless with my characters. I'm going to yes and everything. I'm I'm going to be 100% invested in the story, not in my character winning. And it really changed my outlook in and because I was playing all of these GMless narrative games at the time, I was like this is perfect. I am practicing the hell out of what I am learning. So what was the transition then, Karen? Because there's a lot of people that have taken a lot of improv classes, but there's a very small group of people that have taught it. So yeah. what was that transition for you where you said, I'm not just going to participate, I have things to share? There was a Apocalypse World game that I was in, and I'm not going to name names, and Sean, you can't name names either, because <laughs> this is recorded. But Sean knows who this was because he was there. Um, We were playing an Apocalypse World game and there were four players and three of us had one story and one person was really telling their own story. Mm. And they only cared about their NPC interacting with the GM. And they kind of were actively foiling the rest of us, you know, trying to survive the apocalypse and and whatever big disaster, you know, was was, um, in... Uh, trying to think of the word, whatever big disaster was on the horizon. Right. And it was very frustrating. And I came out of that and I was like, I'm going to have to teach this workshop, aren't I? Because I kept talking about it. It was like, man, it'd be so great if there was a, a, you know, an improv class just for gamers. So we could really focus on the, just the parts that apply to our hobby. Because there's a lot in improv that, that doesn't apply. Mm -hmm. And, and I was like, oh no, it has to be me doesn't it? Because no one else is doing it, at least in my town. And so I got together with, uh, with my friend Mia Blankensop, who I had mentioned joined our Pathfinder game. Mm -hmm. And she was still fairly new to gaming. So we were like, here's a game of burning wheel. Hang on. (laughs) That game was amazing. It was our very first game. And it was the gift she was playing as uh, one of the, the Jordan Seneschal. And it was just like, just diving into the deep end. And The Gift is one of my favorite games to introduce people to Burning Wheel as well. And it was very LARPy. It's very LARPy. So so we were all doing great. Another person at that game was Matt Klein. And and so the three of us got together and I, uh, because Matt Klein is also um, a gamer and and an improviser and he was doing a lot of like corporate workshops and things mm-hmm. from that nature. And Mia at the time had a lot more teaching instruction as, a, as an improv instructor than I did. So the three of us got together and I said, I want to run this workshop. I want to put it together. Let's brainstorm. So we had, I remember like a, a breakfast in a, a place in Oakland and I was furiously trying to like take notes um, on this table that was like covered in, in plates of half eaten eggs and toast and stuff. And, uh, just to set the scene. And we were thinking like, right, what are skills that you need in gaming? We're like, well, one of them is you need to actively listen. Okay. What is an improv game that we know that practices active listening? And we kind of worked backward that way 
of like, what do gamers need to be better at? What do we know from our experience in improv? What are the exercises that practice that? So we put together a whole lineup and then taught it for the first time at Endgame. And so the three of us, Mia was kind of at the time because she had the most instructional experience. She was kind of the lead facilitator and Klein and I were both the co-facilitators and we were doing a lot of the more translating for gamers uh, of, of what Mia was doing. Um, and so we all kind of worked together and, and it just, it was really great. It was so much fun. And we kept doing those at Endgame. Um, a few times after that, and then I submitted it to Big Bad Con. I started running it at like Go Play Northwest when I was up there. And then, you know, as I started kind of picking up and going to more conventions, I started submitting it wherever I could. And we expanded to um, kind of improv for GMs. So then we really dove into what are some more GM specific skills. We did an improv for LARPers. So we did a lot more, a lot more acting in the LARPing one of like, here's how to do like a full body character. Here's how to play with invisible objects. If you're doing like a black box LARP and you don't have props. So we really started piecing together a lot of different things. So we could kind of, again, have something for everybody. And those workshops were really great. And I kind of took over eventually teaching them myself. Um, Mia moved down to LA and Klein just had a lot of other obligations and so couldn't always make it to conventions. And then, yeah, and I've been doing that for like over 10 years. I think that was the first one was in like 2012. Wow. Wow. So I've got a question, Karen. Let's uh, let's do it. Let's do a, a what if. Mm-hmm. Let's say that um, I go to I'm out to the West Coast. I sign up for a con. I find like find that Karen's teaching her her improv for gamers. I sign up for it. I'm super psyched. Mm-hmm. And, and to get ready for it, I happen to find a VHS tape of the first class you taught. <laughs> and then I go to the one tomorrow. I want to know what what changed, right? So from the first time you gave this class to over the last decade, what has happened? to the class, whether it be from material, the way you teach it, it doesn't matter, but it's not the same one that you taught that first time. That's so interesting. I've never thought about that. Um, I'm not sure what would be different because I like to think that it would have been perfect the first time. I'm sure it was. (laughs) I do remember remember one thing from the very first one that sort of had to be edited out later on, which wasn't a bad thing. It wasn't anything that was awful. I I took the class. So Mm -hmm. I'm saying this as a perspective of a of, a, of an attendee of the class is that uh, Mia, as, as you had said, had, was still very new to games. Mm. And so when Mia was talking about the term game, she was often thinking about the term of an improv game. Mm-hmm. And an improv game, you can't lose. You play it for a few minutes and then it's over. It doesn't matter. And so yeah. there's a, there's I a refrain. I use the word exercise in the book a lot instead of game to show the yeah. difference between that. Of It's an improv exercise and a tabletop game. But we, we often refer to the, the thing, those exercises as games. But has has the exercises changed though, Karen, or is it the same exercises? Some of them are still the same. Are they? Uh, but I've certainly added more and and definitely expanded more on my focus of are we just doing kind of an intro to improv and this is applicable for everybody? Or as I said, are we focusing on a particular style? So am I going to do a workshop that's all on characters? You know, am I am I going to really drill down into one thing? And so I'll often pitch them very differently now to be more specific unless I just want to do an intro class which is also fun just to give an overview 
but but back to Sean's story, I think Mia was trying to assure everybody that it wasn't it wasn't a problem. Well, this was at Big Bad Con. This was the first Big Bad Con workshop, and because I remember it was a huge group, and uh, and she was trying to assure everybody that you know there was no winning in these games. Um, and if you if you felt like you messed up, if you felt which is not possible, but if you felt like you did something wrong and you weren't happy with your choice and you thought, oh, I, I, I messed up that game. You can just tell yourself, she said, um, it's just a stupid game. And everybody went <gasps> and she didn't know what what she'd done. She looked at me like, what did I say? And I was like, man, it's not, it's not a stupid game, man. You can't. This is our lives. so we can repeat that again that line didn't come back yeah it was it was pretty it was pretty amazing oh uh, and i I can't imagine there's just a visceral reaction (laughs) it was really fun um we all learned something that day oh i bet oh another thing that was unique to the first ones that we ran at endgame is that we would play a game after so oh. at conventions, I didn't have to do that. Right. And I could squeeze everything into a two-hour time slot. Um, but at Endgame, it was it was kind of a whole day. It was like a four or five-hour event because we would do a workshop, take a break and have lunch, come back and play Fiasco, I think is one that we did frequently. We also played Archipelago. I've also, in later, actually, instances where I have put a game element on the end, I've ran like For the Queen or Ghost Court, or some other game where then we can immediately put it into practice. And so that was part of the early one. It was really like a whole half day intensive. So I come from a training background, and um, I'm going to ask this, ask this from that perspective. Um, can you think of a success story? Um, and, and it's something that when I was training, um, and giving workshops and things like that, that I just, that, that was my fuel, right? When I found that person and I saw it click and I'd be curious if you can think of a situation where, um, you saw somebody transform that they came into the workshop, uh, with one perspective, with one set of skills and really came out the other end and just made you that night you went home and you you know, damn it, I did it. You know, I'm not sure there's no one person cemented in my mind, but I have received really great feedback from a lot of people who have come up to me uh, later, found me at another convention and said, you know, that was so great. That made such a big impact. I started doing improv or, you know, I started GMing because I thought it was really scary before. And and then I just decided to try it out and it was great. So I have gotten really great feedback from people, though I don't have one like specific story that that jumps to mind. Is there any feedback that ever surprised you? Was there any any time a somebody who um, went to the workshop and told you this is what I got out of it? And you're like, oh, I didn't think you would get something like that out of it. Any surprises? Yeah, the first thing that occurred to me, because again, in my mind, it was always an improv workshop and it was it was an intensive event. Uh, It didn't occur to me until later that people would want to play just one of these games with their group before Mm. a full session. And and it's so silly now because that's such a, a thing that I encourage people to do. But at the time, somebody said, oh, yeah, I started playing you know, a game or two with my table just to get warmed up. And I was like, well, that is brilliant. Obviously I had just always been looking at it through the lens of this is a whole 
lesson that, you know, builds upon itself. I was like, no, obviously you can take all of these. So many of them are fun little warm up games anyways, that you can just play with friends. Oh, that's cool. That's cool. So at some point, Workshop becomes a book. Um, mm-hmm. and, and like to know how that happened. Well, I was uh, an ESL teacher at the time. And so I was making a lot of lesson plans anyways, as a teacher. So and again, when we started with, um, with Matt and Mia, I was writing up these kind of lesson plans for us to all go through. And they were very detailed. I was kind of scripting stuff to help Mia uh, present things a little bit. Yeah. And, and I was writing down the detailed instructions for myself so I knew how, how it would go. So I had kind of a manual. Uh, you know, I, I had a teacher's workbook for a while when I, when I first went into teaching. And people started asking me, like, could I, like, take your notes? Like, where can I get these games written down? Mm-hmm. And, I, and at the time, there's only one other book that I've come across that I really like that I think is formatted in a similar way where it just gives you a lot of games and not as much theory. Other times there's a lot of great books about the theory and the games are often kind of in the back, kind of in the middle part of a story. So it's really, uh, you know, they're organized in a lot of different ways, but I was, people were asking like, can I, where can I get the, the written rules for this. Cause I want to go run this with my friends. And so sometimes I would just like give people my, my sheet of notes at the end and like, here you go. But we started thinking about like, we should really put this down somewhere so people can take it themselves and, and teach their friends. And so that's where the first draft came from. It was kind of a more organized teacher's manual. And it was really pitched towards honestly, like an improv teacher or other facilitator about how to teach this for gamers. And then I pitched it to, uh, to evil hat as, you know, I, I have this book, it seems really popular. Um, and I, I had a couple other people in mind. I pitched it to evil hat first to see if they would be interested. And they said, yeah, but then, um, I gave, I gave the whole thing to my editor, Josh Yearsley, And he came back and was like, this seems written for somebody who's actually maybe not a gamer. Like this seems written for somebody who is a trained instructor and the people who are going to buy it are going to be the gamers who have never done improv before. I was like, yes, obviously that is correct. So I will be right back. So I went and I rewrote the whole thing. Wow. So that it was coming from that perspective of you don't know improv and that's okay. You can pick up this, this game, you can flip to a page, the exercise is going to say, here's a a gamer skill. Here's how you use it. You know, here's how you can practice it. These are the instructions. Here are some takeaways. And, and so it was very much then designed that anybody could kind of pick it up and easily facilitate. And the whole format was also set up so that uh, your audience can't see me do this, but I'm holding a book and I'm showing that if you open it to a single spread, um, the entire game, the entire exercise would be on a single spread. So oh, you yeah. could just look at it and go, that's it. It was very small, very containable. And we kept that. Because I really wanted it to still feel like a like a, a a workbook. You know, something that was an easy teaching reference. So you create this workshop, you refine this workshop over time. You have these detailed notes because of that's, you know, 
that that's in your blood as far as being, you know, what you were as a teacher and creating lesson plans. Um, you make the first version of the book, you pitch it to Evil Hat, they, uh, great, your editor comes back and says, no, it's garbage, you got to re and you re <laughs> He did say it more um, <laughs> diplomatically than that, but yes, he did say like, I think that you've written this to the wrong audience. So then you, then you, you're done, the book is mm-hmm. out and Evil Hat is selling it and somehow you get an idea i think there needs to be a second edition and i want to understand what made you come back i just wanted to include more yeah i was still continuing to perform and to teach and to take classes myself and learn more exercises and i learned a lot more things i thought oh this would be so good and i was still teaching the workshops so the workshops were evolving but the book was now kind of stuck in the time of here's what the workshops were like in, um, you know, in 2017, but I was still moving on and, and refining them. And so there was a lot more content that I wanted to put in. And so we kind of kept talking about like, well, when it finishes its print run, if, if we want to do another one, I would actually prefer to make a second edition. And I also wanted to change a lot of things because I, Again, I wrote it always imagining that this would be something that people would do in person. Oh. Yeah, and then... A reasonable expectation so, three years ago. <laughs> yeah, but and but also, like, it wasn't like Twitch streaming was new. Right. I just, it wasn't something that I was doing a lot of, and it, so it wasn't something that I was imagining that people would want to use this for. But then I had more and more people kind of ask, like, well, does it work online? And I thought, well, of course it does. You just have to you know, find a way to make it work. So if it says something like, oh, this, this play passes around in a circle, uh, I don't know, determine what order you're going to go in beforehand. But I thought I I really should go back and revise the language a little bit. So it sounds a bit more open ended. And there are still some exercises that really only work when everyone is in the same physical space. But I find that the the takeaways from them are so valuable. I wasn't willing to let them go just because they wouldn't work in every format. Now we say, okay, we're going to do print runs over. We're going to do a second edition mm-hmm. and uh, we're going to crowdfund it. Mm-hmm. And we're going to go with GameFound and not Kickstarter. And I suspect I know some of the story of why, but I want to assume nothing um, because I would imagine it was not driven by dollars right because that's real there's a real decision that would be a sensible that would be a sensible reason for making a decision yeah yeah so so i guess the first thing is is was that did you know going in from the beginning like we're going to crowdfund this and we're not going to do it on kickstarter is that something that changed during this process it was a decision that we honestly just made earlier this year Oh, okay we had kind of always assumed that it would be kickstarter because evil hat has had so many successful kickstarters and improv for gamers is not a money maker. I, I have to be humble in admitting that it's not the bestseller on on their list of games. And so it was never going to make a lot of money on any crowdfunding platform, but it also is not terribly expensive to make. Right. So it had that going for it. <laughs> Um, who can, who can talk to me about the first conversation of saying, maybe we don't want to use Kickstarter. I think Sean can speak to that more because that was really a conversation that I, I kind of said, well, uh, you know, 
the publisher is going to do what the publisher wants to do. I I'm really fine with whatever you decide to, but it, it sounds like what's happening in the current climate of we're unsure what Kickstarter is doing with crypto. We might just want to try out a different platform. And this seems like a low risk book to do that with because we don't need to raise a ton of money to make it happen. Yeah, Karen captured it very well. Uh, before we, I, I broached the idea to her, I was talking internally with the rest of the folks at Evil Hat about the idea. And, you know, Kickstarter... At, at, I mean, still to this day, Kickstarter has been very unclear about what they're going to do with yeah. blockchain. We still have a lot of questions. We still see a lot of opportunity for harm that is mm-hmm. uh, unnecessary and that is that is not going to help help the creators. We could be wrong, but there's way too many unknowns. So I, I want to sort of say caveat: this is not we're not burning down. We're, we're, well, we're trying not to like you know burn burn bridges here sure. we, we might go back to kickstarter in yeah. the future who knows I, I i said crypto but i i meant blockchain but in my mind they're so they're so yeah. mixed up together they're they're, they're very intertwined mm-hmm. and um not not being sure of it we started having discussions about well what are other crowdfunding uh platforms out there what else could we use and sort of some of that conversation didn't even have to do with kickstarter some of that came to we as a company really need to be cognizant of of uh of not becoming too beholden to any one platform. Because, you know, you see this all the time. Patreon changes its its pricing models, you know, uh, uh, diff- different companies that you sort of do business with really control the market. And if you invest all your energy and all your, and all your work in there, um, then you're really at their mercy at, mm-hmm. no matter what. And, you know, we were, we were very frustrated with Kickstarter's resistance to unionizing a few years back. So, so this wasn't the first time that we had, I mean, we almost put the brakes on, on kickstarting Agon, uh, for that exact reason. We, and, and, and we, uh, but the, the unionizers were like, no, no, please use the platform. We want you to work on it. So we, we did it, but we did it with, with caution. Mm-hmm. And we, we put a little caveat in the Kickstarter that, um, you know, we're, we're sort of following their lead. But, uh, you know, we were prepared to, to, to back out if we needed to. And uh, so, so this, we already had a little bit of a sour taste in our mouth. And the, the, the blockchain announcement just, and, and it being even less kind of understandable, because at least with, with the union, we were talking to KSU. And I was in active communication with several of the members and like getting regular feedback. This, there's an advisory board. I don't, we've heard nothing from this mm-hmm. advisory board. Like we, we really don't know anything. So oh, and there was also no knowing when anything was going to be announced. So we thought, well, do we do we wait and see? And potentially some big announcement comes right before or during our campaign, and everybody rightfully decides not to support Kickstarter and our you know, and our project suffers because of that. Or, you know, or do we go over to this other platform and you know, and maybe nothing comes of it with Kickstarter. Maybe they they decide that they are not going to do blockchain, and and you know, and we didn't necessarily have to make the move. So it was kind of a timing thing too. But we really wanted to uh, where we can. Evil Hat is not a huge company. Evil Hat uh, isn't beholden to any shareholders. We have the flexibility to. Uh, we're sort of at a place where we're just big enough that if Impact for Gamers is not a huge smash success, that's okay. We we will certainly survive. Mm-hmm. But we. Um, uh, but 
yeah, we're not so profit driven that we have to because clearly Kickstarter would have better discoverability. I don't know if it have anything better than anything else, mm-hmm. but I know it would have better discoverability because they have twenty million backers instead of seven hundred thousand, right? Like there's just a numbers game there. But it seemed like Karen mentioned that like Imperfect Game was just a good uh candidate to, to make an experiment with to see what it was like and just to learn what other systems were. Mm-hmm. Um and so we looked at Indiegogo, we looked at GameFound, we looked at a few others, and uh, I got some, you know, some some personal uh, interaction with the GameFound CFO. He he kind of walked me through everything, and I'm doing a lot of research. Uh, it looked like a really good platform. Like I, I had to say, uh, blockchain or no, I love the interface. It's just it's, it does things really well. Um, Kickstarter, you can have a pledge level, and you can you can. Specify what's in it, but you can't really drill down to it. And with GameFound, you can every single item can have its own image and its own description, and it's really easy to uh, do add-ons and uh, you can build stretch goals in. Uh, and and then uh, add a bonus: uh, the because GameFound started as a is a pledge management company like Backerkit, uh, they build pledge management right in. So payment cost wise. You don't have to pay twice. Um, you know, normally Kickstarter charges you five percent off the top, plus another three percent credit card fees, and then and then back your kit has a couple different models. But usually, you're going to usually be paying about three more percent. So you know, it's it's you're sort of paying for your pledges twice, right? Uh, to use both of those formats, and with um, GameFound, they're, they're charging the same five percent Kickstarter is plus three percent, you know, uh, credit card fees. But that's it. That that's one fee, and you don't get the secondary one. So there was also some attractiveness to that. And that I think we were talking about this before the call. We don't have an awkward transition phase where we're like, we went around one platform and now we're on the other. It's just one seamless. Well, I think it's seamless. We haven't gotten there yet. I don't know for sure. Mm-hmm. But I believe it's going to be a seamless movement from preview of the crowdfunding campaign to the crowdfunding, which we're doing right now, and to the pledge fulfillment, which we'll do as soon as that's as soon as that up. So. What's frustrating for me um and I'm going to tell this being very self-aware because I'm, I'm an old dude, right? I'm 50 years old. <laughs> I'm an old man, right? So me saying, ah, I don't understand that, you know, like that's whatever. Yeah, maybe I'm yelling at clouds, but I'm also not dumb. And and the one thing that frustrates me, and this I think is ties to what you guys are talking about, about the silence or um, ambiguity from Kickstarter is, and I've looked, I've yet to really get a coherent understanding or a coherent argument for blockchain. When I ask people who love it, they tell me what the technology does. Okay. Um, they uh, explain to me this is this is a use case for it. Okay. But I've yet to hear a coherent understanding of why why would a company like Kickstarter say we need to migrate to blockchain and it's going to be better for Kickstarter and it's going to be more importantly better for the people that pledge on Kickstarter and the people that create on Kickstarter and and I encourage um, somebody at some point to make that argument because it's very possible that the three of us are when are, are in our retirement home and they put us in a special section because we didn't get blockchain, right? We were the dumb. <laughs> and, and I'm open yeah. to that being the case, but I will tell you right now, I, I, it, they're not making a good case. Um, and, and I would like to see that. I think there was one thing, Sean, that you were talking about that you saw there could be a benefit for blockchain. 
I had one theory. Yeah, I had one theory and I explored this and it's true that it might be doable with blockchain. But when I looked into it more, it was also doable with an open API that didn't require blockchain. But nevertheless, I thought when they first made this announcement, I was like, Kickstarter can only be run in the US right now. Uh, and and so, uh, US and a few other affiliated countries that, that Kickstarter has sort of approved. If someone's in the Philippines and they want to run a crowdfunding campaign, they cannot use Kickstarter. So what if they put the Kickstarter code the coach running a crowdfunding and they federate it so that anybody can like Mastodon does like Mastodon is like the federated version of Twitter. Mm-hmm. Like anybody can set up their own Mastodon server and then those Mastodon servers can talk to each other and you can create your own social network. Uh, and you, you have a lot, it's, it's, you're not beholden to, to Twitter. Right. So I thought maybe, maybe there's an argument to be made that you federate out another version of Kickstarter and it's the, the Philippines version of Kickstarter, the Brazilian version of Kickstarter, some other country that previously didn't have access, and they can borrow on, they can get that knock-on effect from the discoverability that we talked about before. You take the 20 million Kickstarter backers, and they're part of the same ecosystem. Kickstarter is going to charge them to use the API. Kickstarter is going to benefit from a, a more diverse uh, platform, right? Kickstarter is going to get a lot of benefits from this, but other countries would too. And, and, and I still think that's a possibility, but I don't think there's any need for blockchain to do that anymore. I was like, maybe that would be it. But uh, from talking, and I'm not a programmer, but I know several. And I, I, I actually had a big Twitter conversation a while back where I was like, please, somebody help me understand why blockchain, right? Please. And, and, um, and it really just, as far as I can tell, you, know, you get into blockchain and to that extent, crypto and NFTs because you're hoping that it's the new hot cool thing and you're going to get in early and make a ton of money off of it. There's not I'm yet like yourself to see the true virtue of it. I see it as more of a scheme, especially with crypto and, and NFTs. Uh, blockchain maybe not, but but uh but I see it more as a scheme where it's like you've got to convince more people to buy into it so that your value is cemented and grows and if they don't then uh, then you just invested all this time and energy and money into something that isn't that isn't real. And I mean that's that's true with any currency, anything that you're trying to get people to invest in and believe in. But there's just no, like you're saying, there's no actual benefit to it. Like mm-hmm. we have not seen. I, I understand a little bit of blockchain. I get the idea behind it. Like, well, we're not going to let banks control this stuff, but. Banks have gotten things like credit card charges down to a science where they cost fractions of a penny to trend zoo, whereas a blockchain transaction takes up to 100,000 times as much energy because there's so many different, and this depends on the crypto you're using, and you know, it depends on whether it's proof of work or proof of state. There's lots of variables here. Correct. But it takes so much more energy because there's tons of computers out there all competing for who gets to validate it, and only the one who won gets the reward. But everybody else still spent all that energy trying to validate it to beat them. And then there's this arms race of, well, I want to get the reward. So I'm going to have more and more machines Mm -hmm. to do it faster and faster. So there's just, no matter how streamlined you can make blockchain, the the inherent design of it is just going to be so much more energy intensive. And in this world of like environmental collapse that we're looking at, that just seems like such a horrific idea. So... Sorry, that's I've been a little bit on my soapbox there. Yeah, we had to both do a deep dive into what we didn't understand to try to figure out what what all this meant. 
Yeah. And, and like I said, you know, when I, 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 I like to think I'm not that old of a man. Like when I come across something I don't understand, I do the same thing. Or I'm like, I need, mm-hmm. I need to figure this out. Right. And God bless, you know, in this day and age, it, if you don't know something that's on you, because the whole world's mm-hmm. in your fingertips. Right. But yeah. um, to Sean's point, um, and, and to be clear, you know, I am open to blockchain. All right. I, I am, I am blockchain curious. Um, <laughs> I've made my decision about NFTs and crypto um, as use cases. Um, so that, I've done the, I did my research, right? Um, so I've made my decisions there. Um, it's the underlying technology that I'm still waiting for um, mm-hmm. as being a possibility. So um, yeah, I, I completely, completely understand what you're saying. But to bring it back for a circle to what we were talking about uh, <laughs> on, on Craig's, <laughs> Craig's night of blockchain discussions, um, <laughs> it, it is frustrating that how um, I, I agree that the frustration about how Kickstarter is communicating this and explaining this and giving a sense of timing and creating a huge unknown for a lot of people um, is frustrating. All right, last question. And I <laughs> start with you, Karen. Uh, whenever I talk to creatives, um, one of the things that I find fascinating is what they consume. So right now, is there a book, a movie, a game, a video game, something that has got its hooks in you? It's all you think about when you're not thinking about it. Like, are you obsessed with anything right now that you're consuming? Oh, this is a hard question to answer because right now, uh, for the past two years, my job has been as a technical editor. And so I read and edit all day. And when I'm done, I don't want to read. And so it's very sad that since I had this job, which is a wonderful job, it has been so great for me. I've been so happy to be in this field. My recreational reading has plummeted because I, I am tired. <laughs> and, uh, but it is still like such a joy to read a book that is already edited. That's wonderful. <laughs> I do love doing that. Um, so I find that I consume a lot more uh, TV and movies. Okay. What have you been loving and, lately? Um, I really like heist movies. And I think that that also is something that we leaned into more in 2020 of just like, let's just watch movies where smart people steal money from rich people. Let's, let's just watch more of that. <laughs> um, I also spend, I think, way too much time on TikTok, oh. which I love as as like an entertainment feed because there's so many weird little skits and jokes and just bizarre, you know, like a 30 second punchline. And so it just gives me like such like little instant dopamines Mm -hmm. that I can just like keep pressing that button uh, like a rat. (laughs) Um, So that, that is what I'm consuming a lot of right now is just trying to get quick entertainment sure uh, because my brain is a little too tired right now because it is just taking a lot of focus for me to edit intensely you know for eight hours a day i completely get that completely mm-hmm. get that how about for you sean is there a, a recent obsession a show you binged the hell out of a game you played a ton um uh, i was thinking about media i was like what what am i what am i reading and i'm and uh and yeah, Karen and I are often watching a lot, watching a lot of the, the, the same things. But yeah. <laughs> um, the the book that I'm uh, listening to right now, the audiobook I'm listening to, um, that is uh, well, the one I, just, I finished not too long ago was Gideon the Ninth by Desmond Mirror. That's a fantastic game, fantastic book. I think the sequel is out or going to be out in a second. I'm, I'm going to hop on that. So a lovely uh, 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 
would be perfect for a Thirsty Sword Lesbians game. Uh, just, just lovely, like apocalyptic uh, uh, setting. That's it's apocalyptic fantasy. It's beautiful. Nice. And the and the narrator, uh, if you haven't listened to the audio book, the narrator for it, she is just amazing. The way she uh, portrays Gideon, just you fall in love with her immediately. Um, and the other one that I'm, the one I'm still listening to, and it's taking me forever because I listened to it just in little bits, uh, is Moby Dick. Uh, the book is do? atrocious. Hmm. Like it's like it's super racist. It's uh, it's it's awful in a lot of ways. But the language that uh, Herman Melville uses is just it's just amazing. And every time I think of it, I think of Blades in the Dark, and I start thinking of these characters. I start thinking about like someone who's come back from Leviathan hunting, or somebody who like works on the docks, or like somebody who leases out, who like buys a boat and invests in it, and then sees what happens when it goes out. Like all of these. I mean, so much of the uh, you know Leviathan hunting from Blades in the Dark comes from whale yep. hunting. You know, our history of whale hunting and, and all of its various horrors. And when they talk about the anatomy of a, of a sperm whale, which is totally wrong, like he is just straight making things up, but he's making things up in the most fascinating way, in those fascinating details. So it, it gets me, it always kind of engages my like, uh, it, because he's like, because I know he's just BSing, it like, it really engages my like, oh, my world building brain. And I'm yeah. like, I can do that too. I want, I'm going to, I'm going to make up these things and, and hopefully not make up these things with, awful racist elements in them but you know but that creative, can be true uh, right uh, sean yeah i mean yeah. the guy can be an amazing writer um and obviously you know melville <laughs> changed how books were written quite frankly mm-hmm. um yeah. and you know his book can be full of a bunch of garbage too um the yeah. thing about me with melville um and i think this is tying to a lot of what you said is is his ability to the decisions on details, um, the things mm-hmm. that he focuses on that the first time you read Moby Dick, you know, you're like, oh, OK, that was good. And then you read it again. You go, oh, now I know why he was very specific about this person's hair and very specific mm-hmm. about this part of the ship. And um, that's very, very good. Well, guys, this was a real pleasure. We um, you guys were wonderful to come on with a, very little notice. And I do appreciate it. We've got the obvious plug for the for the book and everybody who scrolls yes. down right now can mm-hmm. go right now to Game Found and um, prove to everybody that Game Found was the best decision ever. And uh, <laughs> that'd be great. Yes, please. Yes, please do that. Two dollars um, and join me in backing it. But um, uh, Karen, is there any other things that you'd like to plug or any other places people can go to get more Karen? Yeah, I mean, if you're interested in learning more about improv in general, I love helping people get started. And, you know, I have a, a lot of recommendations in the Bay Area, at least for theaters that I'm familiar with. Again, depending on, you know, what type of thing people want to get into, if you are interested in the performance aspect of it. I also do teach improv as like team building workshops. Mm. And because I love doing that, again, it's, it's kind of the same thing. I just love playing those types of games and seeing how they are a fun and very approachable way to practice human skills. So if that is something that people are interested in doing is, you know, putting together kind of just a fun play day for their team or for their friends, uh, they can absolutely reach out to me. And how would they do that? Uh, they can go to improvforeverybody.com or just find me on, on Twitter, uh, you know, K-12s or on Instagram or TikTok. <laughs> um, and again, everybody scroll down. We've got all the links there. How about for you, Sean? Any um, plugs or anything we need, where we need to go to get more Sean? 
Sure, sure. I mean, you can find me pretty much everywhere at @shawnmitner. It's my email. It's my Twitter. It's that that that's me everywhere. Obviously, as as we said, we're we're crowdfunding uh, in proper gamers right now. We're also getting very close with a couple other games at Eagle Hat that uh, just went into layout, which is a which is a very finishing stage for us. Uh, Apocalypse Keys by Ray Najati is uh, is just about to go into layout and probably early next week. And that means people should be seeing things about that. We'll probably be crowdfunding that in a few months. Um, uh, Fate of Umdar, our, uh, our, our, our game, our sort of Thunder, the Barbarian version of, uh, with, with a very anti-colonialist bend. Uh, Fate game is going to be going to playtest very soon. And uh, Girl by Moonlight, I think, is also going to be getting layout really soon. So just a lot of things are, hit, are getting these finishing stages as a project manager i try to keep them more spaced out but this is how the world works things, <laughs> things come early things come late things come when they come and uh so lots of lots more fun stuff from the hat coming out soon and of course i would be remiss not to say that big bad online is happening may 6th yeah. this has already happened if this is after may 6th when you're hearing this then it's all available on youtube and you can watch it and we're gonna have 24 hours of amazing panelists presenting on so many different topics and I am just floored with the various communities that we have speaking. We have Native American communities that, that developed Coyote and Crow speaking. We have a Brazilian uh, uh, contingent of, of folks that are all translating games in Brazil. We have um, the Desis and Dragons uh, uh, folks uh, that, uh, that are in India that are talking about sort of the, 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 the tabletop scene in India. We have folks in Southeast Asia. We have, this is the most international uh the diverse big bad has ever been. And we're going to have so many fantastic panels talking about just so many more different experiences that I think we've, we've, we've ever had before. So May 6th, 6 PM to 6 PM, May 7th is 24 hours free, but we have a fundraiser. If you want to support that, we would certainly appreciate it. Very, very cool. That's my stick. Sorry. <laughs> That's okay, Sean. And then now it's a two-parter. So I'm kidding. <laughs> uh, legit, legit. <laughs> um, but as uh, as I've already said to Sean, but I'll say it to you, Karen, um, I'm, mm-hmm. I will come up with another excuse to get you on because I really enjoyed this and I appreciate you taking the time. Absolutely. Yeah. Awesome. And those of you listening, you listen to the whole thing and this is the end. And I want you to know I appreciate you too. Take care. episode subscribe to tabletop talk and share it with your friends check out our content on youtube and twitch follow us on twitter and facebook and stay updated on everything coming from third floor all the links are in the show notes take care floor heads still here wow um well the episode is over but if you're bored why not go to patreon.com and support the show for as little as a dollar a month yeah you can just scroll down scroll down and yeah get the link it's patreon that makes this and all of our other content possible don't you want to join the other floorheads on the patreon discord anyway Thanks for sticking around.
Take care.